0: And it's forever. Ghosts of my life. It's another ambient artist again this week with Marlo and Stephen.
1: Well, this is uh, Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast, uh, and I'm Stephen and... I'm uh, Marlo. As you just said, and we are going over two essays in the book about the artist John Fox, our favorite um, our f- religious scholar from... Our
0: favorite Protestant polemic who taught an entire nation to hate the Catholics...
1: Yes, John Fox. Not that John Fox. Um, The
0: ambient artist, John Fox.
1: (laughs) John Fox, he made this album in 2006 called Tiny Color Movies. And this essay is called Old Sunlight from Other Times and Other Lives. John Fox's Tiny Color Movies. And it's originally a K-Punk article um, from June 19, 2006. Shortly after the album came out, and uh, yeah, we will just jump right into it. Um, Marlo loved the album. Yeah, I mean, actually, I kind
0: of liked his music overall. If I find the person from these essays to be a bit comedically pretentious, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but no, I mean, like whatever. As far as like when I think of like ambient music. I mean, yeah, it kind of has that somewhat uh, AFX 20 sound to it in some parts. In other parts, it's just a melancholic piano, which is also like another type of AFX twin. So yeah, it kind of reminds me of AFX twin Well,
1: the song we were just listening to, uh, Dam reminds me of Kraftwerk, Noi, and. Some, you know, Kraut Rocky kind of stuff. But right. you're right, like his more synthy stuff mm-hmm. is, is extremely. Yeah, 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 it's got a lot
0: of, yeah, that, like craft work shit too. anyway uh so yeah i mean to start off i mean fisher hones in on the obvious thing with tiny color movies which is the relationship between the visual and the sonic is an explicit motivating factor to quote wait him. wait
1: wait we didn't i always skip over it too but the the little passage he gives uh okay he which, gives a
0: passage in the beginning from a book that John Fox has spent 30 goddamn years of his life writing. He was
1: in the market's crowds wearing a shabby brown suit trying to find me through all the years. My ghost coming home. How do you get home through all the years? Uh, yeah, it goes on and on, but it's apparently. Uh, wait,
0: no, actually, is that from that one or is that from because I think he quotes from two different works. Yeah, of he
1: quotes from two works: uh, "Quiet Man" and "Shifting City." Yeah, and, so I was
0: referring to "Quiet Man." Yeah,
1: this is somebody else, so I think it's "Shining," "Shining City," maybe.
0: Yeah, so the premise of "Quiet Man," which we watched, a bit of John Fox reading "Quiet Man." Uh, which is a book that, per the interview, he has been continuously writing and For his whole life, yeah. It's basically, imagine if 28 Days Later was more boring and pretentious. It, the conceit is it's written as this, like, day in the life of a salaryman sort of idea of, like, Tom got up and fixed his coffee. He went to uh, walk down to the market. He passed where Mrs. Weatherby lived. But then as the story goes on, you realize we're in a post-apocalyptic setting. As far as we know, Tom's the or whatever the fuck the guy's name is, uh, is the only individual human alive, as far as we can tell. I mean, again, he's been writing it for 20 years. Maybe some crazy shit happened. Also, but I
1: think that's the premise yeah
0: but that seems to I mean for all I know like maybe by now Tom, like the main characters like found a whole like group of people and they're having a ball I don't know how it goes but uh, that's that's pretty much the conceit of the book uh, so you can kind of imagine that a lot of his stuff He just kind of reminds me of the coolest collector of Chris Nolan posters that you bought weed from in college.
1: Well, okay. So a little background, uh, basically the wiki of him is he's originally named Dennis Lee and he was in the new wave band Ultravox Right. um, until he started his solo career with an album that Fisher talks about, Metamatic, which is... As we discussed very uh, Gary Newman esque. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was the Gary Newman. Like,
1: if you know Gary Newman cars here in my car, no nah, 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 you know, it
0: has a Our Friends Electric. Yeah.
1: Burp, burp, burp. Yeah, no. Those two songs yeah. that are made by Gary Newman. <laughs> right.
0: The, <laughs> the two, if you don't know Gary Newman, he has two songs, listen to them both, they're pretty good. They're really good.
1: <laughs> um, um, and and Metamatic has that, you know, detached kind of vocalist even more detached than Gary Newman and over the years he's just become less and less of a frontman and more and more of this like artist that makes pictures with his music and Mm -hmm. ambient music and that's sort of where Tiny Color uh, Movies comes in because he pairs it a lot with the visuals. Right
0: and also okay so I kind of maybe I didn't understand this from the interview part but I think he also like Put the actual tiny picture like on film reel well it's like
1: that was in that was in the beginning of this that's what we're getting to. The inspiration for the album was a film collection um, by Arnold white's bryant he he collects only films that are short. They gave a showing of it in Baltimore where mm-hmm. Fox attended it and was blown away so much that he made the album okay. based on the memories of that and then I think that he used those. In well, because
0: the- he discusses, there's a part in the interview where he discusses that he's only been able to mostly show, quote, digital replica of the f- films, because the actual films are, like, delicate and hard to ship around and yeah. stuff. Uh, it's hard so, for them to get So, to so England. you know, it is, it's treated as an art project. I mean, that's kind of like the physical medium he's also playing with. Uh, but anyway...
1: Very pretentious, but also inspiring. No, I mean, inspiring. What? look,
0: I'm not just getting on him. He, it's, you know, it's he's kind an artist. Of,
1: it's kind of inspiring. Yeah, you know? sure. It's, it's, a, it's a
0: perfectly cogent project a person can have.
1: Okay, so Fisher talks about how it's hauntological, right? That's the name of the book. That's the name of the chapter. Why is it hauntological? And Partially,
0: I think he kind of... You know, he's discussing in this context the sort of musical genre side of hauntology and hauntological music.
1: Well, he Um, says here, it it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say Fox's entire musical career has been about relating the hauntology of the visual with the hauntology of the sound, transposing the eerie calmness and stillness of photography and painting onto the passional agitation of rock. Mm Mm-hmm. Good quote for this, and basically that's the only quote you probably could take away from this, although there are other good parts of it. But that's the theme, is that it's hauntological because it has these visuals that go with the music, and the music itself is trying to capture you know, this feeling of loss that he felt when looking at the visuals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the the visuals are, I mean, the skyscraper one has this really... There's, you know, Skyscraper is another track from it that's my favorite. And it, yeah, you know, it has, like, 1960s... I mean, it, it 60s. looks like
0: shit that was shot on a Super 8. Um, it, it looks like home movies. If your, you know, grandparents had home movies or whatever, uh, it looks like home movies of, you know, Skyscraper. And true to home movies, they didn't record sound. And you would often when getting them developed, have a film track, like, just put on top of it. Uh, yeah. Or a soundtrack just put, you know, on top of it. That was usually when you were playing it, you would have that. Do or, you see? Do you see? Yeah, um, that kind of shit. So... Um, Although those are
1: those are uh, photographs, not films. Yeah,
0: well, those were slides, yeah, but... Um, I mean, like, I actually, incidentally, uh, over Christmas, um, my grandparents had uh, a bunch of home movies. They transferred to VHS in the 90s, so we were watching them. That was, yeah, that was what I was really thinking, because then that was a whole thing, and they would always, like, put a fucking soundtrack on top of it, so it was just... And, like, eight-second clips of, like, several different really italian
1: weddings from the 1960s yeah for those listening um in the future possibly in not a time that is now uh we are recording this in january after a long break Mm -hmm. uh, for christmas and new years and stuff like that so marlo went and saw some home movies yeah. Um, so,
0: yeah, no, it had a similar, you know, there's a film grain to it that's like very important. It's, you know, also done mostly in these very short, couple minutes at most, long clips before a cut, you know, of like riding in a car on a street or just. Did you feel like there was it,
1: a certain hauntological. Around the...
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean. Even the uh, car and shit, like yeah, stuff, looked older. I mean, it yeah. was definitely a anachronism that he's playing around with. And I mean, they mentioned Warhol and the skyscraper one particularly is an, is kind of evocative of uh, Empire. It was it just called Empire, the Warhol movie where he just film the Empire State Building for 24 hours or whatever the fuck. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it wasn't that. Like, I mean, it was not just the still camera on a fixed point. It was panning around and stuff. And there were several cuts. Yeah. And but, you know, it was a skyscraper on film. It kind of reminded me of Warhol's thing.
1: Well, speaking mm-hmm. of skyscraper here, he says that uh, it sounds like something out of Blade Runner's soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no which sure. I can hear, yeah. Was that Eno? Well, it says Vangelis. Oh, okay. He says okay. it there. Vangelis' Blade Runner soundtrack. Oh, okay. Guess I was thinking of Dune. <laughs>
0: the, the 80s one. Yeah. the Lynch. And Brian Eno.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, there's then there's another <laughs> quote, which I think that's the one from Quiet Man, I think. I constantly feel a distant kind of longing The longest song, the song of longing I walk the same streets like a fading ghost Flickering gray suit, the same avenues Squares, parks, colonnades like a ghost Over the years I find places I can go through the part we were uh, listening
0: to, it was uh, third person, so I'm just kind of...
1: Maybe it's... Maybe,
0: yeah, like, maybe
1: it's an internal monologue of his. or Yeah, it's the, unclear what, what all these um, quotes are... Yeah, like, from. at
0: the end, Mark Fisher just, like, notes that the quotes all came from, like, one of two writings. It That's
1: was, one thing I find frustrating in general about Zero Books. Uh, like, Capitalist Realism does this, too, where they, oh, yeah, no, they it's don't it's
0: have not citing things or at all like you know and then and then like everyone's like hey kill all normies um sounded like a bunch of stuff sh- the author just literally made up and they're like look we don't work within your scholarly definitions of juridicalness and you're like okay fine guys yeah um you know that's what you get with many
1: uh theory labels He links it back to Ultravox, the old band of John Fox's Systems of Romance album, which has a bunch of songs that are similarly evocative of this longing, of this amnesic catatonia. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, And that it's trance-like, and it's got uh, gentle, blissful sounds that are also, at the same time, impersonal or machinic. I mean, I, I appreciate that description because it kind of does perfectly encapsulate that type of Gary Newman thing where it's both evocative and passionate, but also dispassionate and impersonal. Mm-hmm. Like alien almost.
0: You're like, our friends, why that's personable, electric, ooh. Yeah. That's up- machinic. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the duality. Yeah. Friends and, and electric.
1: And then he says it's psychedelic, or psychedelia is kind of part of this. Um, mm-hmm. He says, in becoming, rather than applauding reiteration, like psychedelia capturing the psychedelic experience of living life and you know he then goes on and compares it to a bunch of artists, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, none of
0: whom are Gary Newman unfortunately. Del-
1: Delvo and Max Ernst, the painter, who him. was like a surrealist. Mm-hmm. And he then compares that to J.G. Ballard, which we looked up. JG. Ballard being like a, a fiction writer known for his futuristic science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like Philip K. Dick or William Burroughs. Uh, it looked like he was, um,
0: kind of a generation after Dick. Like, I mean, he existed at the same time, but it was like Dick was from a slightly Yeah, like generation. post, right,
1: right after the war, right? Because mm-hmm. it was... Yeah, yeah. And Mark Fisher has that whole thesis book, is a lot of Ballard. Right. And a lot of Dick. Flatline. Flatlines. yeah.
0: Flatline Constructs, Another Book of Fishers, it will get to it eventually. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> His college thesis, it's actually pretty hard. Um, yeah. It's, it's actually like somewhat difficult. It's, uh, a,
1: it's a very dense book. Yeah. And he compares it to a surrealist painting. Ballard wrote a 1966 essay, which we read, uh, Coming of the Unconscious, which he quotes here. How a surrealistic painting has one dominant characteristic, a glassy isolation, as if all the objects in its landscapes had been drained of their emotional associations. The accretion of sentiment and common usage, basically. So through surrealism, you kind of create a meaning that you're adding to the object that is being made surreal, and then everything else becomes kind of like flattened Mm. by that which I think is pretty cool. I mean, that's sort of, you know, being on an acid trip. <laughs> yeah. Like something is not quite right, and like
0: extra significance to objects and searching for this meta meeting. Yeah, anyway, so then he gets into the whole Gnosis, thing, which I mean, uh, this other shit, he was kind of dancing around it as well, this whole idea. Yeah, I mean, Fisher gets into this, Fox talks about it in the interview, of this idea of the angel and the angelic and, like, sort of the, you know, within Gnostic philosophy, the idea of, like, the revealed immaterial truth of the world as it gets peeled away. And, like, you know, relating to, you know, the real in Lacan and ego death and LSD trips, um, like, just the general, like, Almost terrifying experience that such perfect serenity holds to <laughs> the viewer.
1: That it's more fearful to meet the, the angel, right? right yeah. So the he, he gets into
0: uh, Rudolf Otto, who was a conservative theologian who... Had this concept um, or this quote or something. Basically, it is actually more terrifying for man to meet the angel than the demon. Sort of, you know, this idea that there's, you know, something familiar about the demonic because it is ugly and of this world, whereas the angel is something so perfect as to be. Beyond comprehension.
1: Uh, this is the second time he's mentioned Gnosticism. He mentioned it in the David Peace. Yeah, so with the essay. Peace
0: thing, he, he has this quote What is suppressed in postmodern culture is not the dark, but the light side. Um, Which is an
1: awesome quote. We are
0: more comfortable with demons than angels. Uh, the demonic appears cool and sexy. The angelic is deemed embarrassing and sentimental. You know, interesting, I would say the peace thing is, uh, you know, the way he used Gnosis there was saying it actually uh, concentrated on the demonic. Mm -hmm. The peace, uh, to the extent that peace was Gnostic, it was Gnostic in the sense of decrying the material world. Right, and that it was
1: kind of getting at the real by... by Whereas this is
0: more trying to present the immaterial transcendent.
1: Well, and that was what was sort of confusing for me, or at least seemed contradictory, was the way it was used with David Peace was, you know, the way to get to the real was to depict it as darkly and as lacking as much sentimentality as possible.
0: uh, Yeah, I mean, that was also, I mean, if I'm recalling correctly, there was something of, like, depressive epistemology being discussed with the David Peace thing, which is... You know, so when you're saying the real, you're really... You mean, like, the truth, yeah. The, the, not the... The depressing like, reality right,
1: of the right. 70s, which, at you know, during that was, right. like... Yeah, I was just... I li- just
0: used the real and the, like, Lacan, so I was just kind of... Uh,
1: what, I, what I was, you know, with Life on Mars. Life on Mars gave us a rosy, sentimental version yeah. of the 70s. Pop
0: culture, signifier-filled...
1: Right, And then David Peace gave us the gritty, real 70s, Mm -hmm. I'm using in air quotes.
0: So, in the case of Peace, I mean, I would say that, at least by this definition, Peace is the postmodernist in many ways. I mean, frankly, embarrassing and sentimental sound like words Fisher would have used to describe life on Mars. Yeah. So, maybe Fisher's got some postmodernism.
1: That's sort of the (laughs) tension with... These two alter and for the listener, I just wrote an article about Gnosticism and hauntology, and there was this tension between does hauntology prioritize the light or the dark? And what is the approach of getting to truth by hauntology? Do you get to truth, or are you constantly deferring the truth because it's in the crackle, it's in the in-between space Mm -hmm. of the past and the future, and so you're trying to capture this in-between in the present. And it doesn't seem entirely clear to me whether or not this Gnosticism has, as he says here, is it suppressing the light side, or is it well, I mean, I engaging think in the gritty darkness?
0: Right. I mean, and in this case, I think it's fairly unambiguous. He feels that Fox is engaging with the light side right. very much so, but he's...
1: So he's railing against postmodern Roger Right, nature, right, like, right.
0: No, that's my point. Whereas Peace, in my comparison of the two uses of Gnostic, seems to actually... Be doing postmodernism? I mean, at least by this rubric. Or at the very least, Gnostic in this case, I mean, I feel like is used in a somewhat more traditional sense of actually seeking transcendence, whereas Gnostic in the peace case was used very much in my mind as a way of saying I have a pessimistic view of the
1: world. Which, yeah, which I don't think he's doing here. No. Which might No, may, no, which he's very might,
0: much saying it's Gnostic because it's actually toying with the idea of transcending over reality. Not just railing against the fact that the world sucks, but overcoming and transcending that to the actual real Right. Um, that you get from experiences with angels and lsd trips
1: i mean it's very interesting it's very interesting that he uses it here and it's very interesting how it weaves into his argument because then it we listened to the panel discussion and there was a guy who identified as a gnostic and he also saw hauntology as being this
0: mid-2000s british academics were so fucking cool academics and culture writers
1: (laughs) yeah and, and his whole thing with it was that he saw hauntological music as you know in the gnostic tradition trying to bring about magic in the world
0: uh-huh. yeah and, no it was super fucking interesting <laughs> um
1: and so in some ways we're gonna get into this but like there is a bit of that here with mm-hmm. the numinous and the way otto is describing it
0: yeah no i mean I, I, like he's basically saying the music is trying to invoke god but like In all the terrifying aspects that meeting God would have.
1: Numinous is the interface with God. Right. We looked that up. Uh Interface with God, which I am sort of relating to, like, if you close your eyes and you pray, like, and you're interfacing with God. Um, when
0: you were a child and stupid. Yeah,
1: when you believed in
0: Santa Claus. This is this is now a skeptic chat with Marlo and Stephen. <laughs> we're taking down the your God. Sky Man. Yeah. Your invisible Sky Man, you dumb idiots. Nah. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. Nah. Well, yeah, which I I always like in my, you know, vague amateur studies of Christian theology, I always kind of associated that action with what, how the Holy Spirit was described. Yeah. Um, like your kind of ethereal, unspeakable, mystical connection to God for as much as that exists in Western Protestantism.
1: He, he makes the distinction that it's not New Age. Uh-huh. Uh, this is not an inner but outer calm, not a discovery of the cheap New Age real self but a positive alienation in which the cold pastoral freezing into a tableau is experienced as a release from identity. Yeah. And this is where he gets into like Harold Budd, who's a prolific ambient artist who right, yeah, makes yeah. three notes on the piano and turns it into. 20-minute songs. It,
0: you would you would not think that he could play so few notes in such a long song.
1: No, I, <laughs> I want to say, like, John Fox There's did a couple albums. One half beat per minute. <laughs> yeah, John Fox did a couple albums with Harold Budd, and I've seen Harold Budd in concert when I was on an acid trip, and it was... Phenomenal. Oh yeah, sure.
0: If you like, phenomenal forget how long you've been standing there, it's great.
1: Well, we were in seated. Yeah. We were in the nice, cushy seats. It mm-hmm. was very nice. It was on the come down too. It was great. So yeah, then he gets into Deleuze and Gutari and Hayasity, which Marlow has a whole thing about. Hayasity
0: yeah, is how something relates to the song "Hey by Outkast. <laughs> and. To highlight that this is actually the real definition of chaosity. <laughs> what page we on? We're on 156. Oh yeah, there it is. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah a okay. certain
1: use of film, think particularly of the aching stillness in Kubrick and Tarkovsky. Seems especially set up to attune us to heosity, as does the Polaroid. Exactly. A capturing <laughs> of a heosity which is itself a heiosity.
0: Right. So you know, so, you know, because the Polaroids are in the chaos. <laughs> Shake they it have like a Polaroid. Heosity. Okay, so what does chaosity actually mean?
1: Chaosity means.
0: Oh, it's Duns concept of the chaosity, the here and now. Here and now. Yeah, it's
1: about identity. Okay. Because, you know, you're here and Virtue, now. and like you're cognizant of time. Mm hmm. And. He he relates this to Deleuze and Guattari's second book uh, on schizophrenia and capital, A Thousand Plateaus, which came out in 1980 and is the follow-up to Anti-Oedipus. Right. In which they say, you know, it's a depersonalized mode of individuation in which everything, the breath of the wind, the quality of the light, plays a part. And so, yeah, it's basically we're in ourselves. You know, which always came across to me as like maybe a little egotistical, but maybe that's the new age thing and they're distinguishing that from the new age thing. Tell yeah, you. I mean, anyway. Now I'm just thinking of, of John Fox doing a really slowed down version of Hey Ya and putting it over oh God, Polaroid. No, we already did that in the 2000s. <laughs> doing an over Polaroid pictures? Oh, no, I'm just saying we already
0: had white people doing Hey Ya slower. Oh yeah, that was already a fad. <laughs> Um I
1: definitely did. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a great song to sing like a tragic acoustic ballad because it lyrically is. But anyway, that's not chaos anymore. now, that's not neither here nor now. There you and go. Yeah. Um, okay. See, so I'm learning. Yeah, um, anyway, it compares the Time and Color movies to sort of found art, yeah. which is, yeah, I mean, I guess if we're getting into, like, everything we've learned about ontology so far, this sort of ethereal quality of this film looks like it belongs to a different context, like it was found and taken out of it and put somewhere else in a certain way. And in fact, it was produced for this art project, but... You know, it kind of gives that impression. So
1: then he brings up the then he brings up the Quiet Man. Yep, which we've already pontificated <laughs> about. Marlowe's favorite. Twenty eight days later, but more pretentiousness. Yeah. Um, um, here you see sunlight from other times and other lives. That's where the. I mean, he
0: gets into it in the interview that he like. Just specifically really likes the imagery of plants growing in an abandoned urban environment. Yeah. Like, that's just a grow up. I mean, I don't think we're going to go into the entire interview on its own. Um, So, you know, I'll just, as an aside, you like, grew up in a factory town. How the British uh, pronounce it is different than how people from South Jersey pronounce Lancaster. Uh, Or Lancastershire.
1: Lancastershire. Yeah,
0: well, anyway, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, He grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, England, uh, where there used to be a lot of factories, blah, 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 so him and his friends used to play in abandoned factories, which were these amazing huge indoor warehousey spaces, and there were literal trees growing in what was the factory floor and stuff, and he always was in there, kind of in that space, you know, thinking about the ghosts, thinking about what it was like when this factory was actually a functional thing. But, you know, throughout his work, he likes the imagery of specifically a post-apocalyptic urban space and and not even just like a bombed out one but like one where plants have overgrown shit like it's just the very thing that he likes that you get from the interview that and then it's like yeah this pops up in his work a lot and it's like okay
1: we're, yeah, we're not going to go over the full interview. We're just going to focus on this essay. And I like that. I like that, too. Yeah, and, yeah, no. I mean, cool abandoned interview. buildings, abandoned, going into abandoned hospitals. Yeah, no, fascinating. It's, it's,
0: yeah. yeah, there's some chronological about it, but also it's kind of cool. Uh, and he thinks it's cool, and he uses it a bunch. And I can appreciate that. Oh no, we got Tarkovsky's Stalker, Otto, more Otto. I
1: like this line, Uh, it is as if we are seeing the urgencies of our lives through the eyes of an alien god. And then he goes into Otto again, Otto claims that the sense of the numinous is associated with feelings of our own fundamental worthlessness. Experienced with a piercing acuteness and accompanied by the most uncompromising judgment of self-depreciation, but to, contrary to today's ego psychology, which hectors us into reinforcing our sense of self, all to better, all the better to sell ourselves, the awareness of our own nothingness is, of course, a prerequisite for the, a feeling of grace.
0: Yeah, Mark, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, Mark Fisher, actually the stuff that says you're a piece of shit is good. Yeah. Fisher, actually you actually, should, actually I'm the normal one and you're not depressed enough. Actually
1: you should read the comments on YouTube yeah. so that you get the full appreciation of we, your nothingness. Then there's another quote, I, I think it's the quiet man because it's third person, right? No. He stood in the soft beams of sunshine diffused by the curtains, caught for a moment in the stillness of the room, watching the dust swirling slowly golden through patches of light that fell across the carpets and furniture, feeling a strange closeness to the vanished woman. Being here and touching her possessions in the dusty intimacy of these rooms was like walking through her life. Everything of her was here but for the physical presence, and in some ways that was the least important part of her for him. He links it to Lacan here. Like, he links the blurred girl uh, from Metamatic to Lacan. Yeah. Um, and how the lover is always going to be perfect but out of reach. The kind of desire object of the, the woman is, you know, constantly deferred. And it does remind me of... Uh, Derrida's deference, as well, you know, the mm. deferral of meaning is always the difference between really. uh, things. And, yeah, there's an enjoyable melancholy about the whole thing. That's, you know, the melancholiness comes from the distance, the melancholy comes from the longing. Oh, that
0: was my thing, standing close never quite touching, like the Matrix. New oh, yeah, yeah, you were yeah, going to say, no, I, if you've seen
1: have... the uh, rebooted Matrix, which, by the way, was a good...
0: Yeah, no, absolutely the best Matrix since the first Matrix um, is the newest Matrix. But, yeah, no, it just, you know, sort of highlighted that there's a central plot point in the new Matrix where these dissident robots or some shit, I, I forget the exact shit, but um, basically they made a new Matrix. As you do. And the robots figured out they could create all the power. Well,
1: they made a new Matrix, the movie, but they also made a new Matrix Matrix in in the Matrix. In
0: in In the new Matrix, they made a new Matrix. And the robot who made the new Matrix figured out that for whatever reason, the best way to generate power is to have Neo and Trinity be in the Matrix together, always sort of happenstance having like a rom-com introduction but never getting the rest of the rom-com movie. Just giving them rom-com blue balls like produces <laughs> the most power, which I would say is the almost perfect Lacanian uh, love movie.
1: Well, you should write an article about yeah. Lacan and, and the new yeah, Matrix. So,
0: yeah, Mark Fisher made me realize the new Matrix is a Lacanian love story. Um. Except then they get the object, the T-A. So it's like a Lacanian love story if the Wachowskis made it. (laughs) 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 Heyo. Wachowskis are bad at philosophy. (laughs) Heyo. Oh, but anyway,
1: yeah. Uh, Then there's another quote. I can detect tiny edges of time leaking through. I feel nothing is completely separate. At some point, everything leaks into everything else. The trick is in finding the places, they are slowly moving, drifting. You can only do this accidentally. If you set out to do it deliberately, you will always fail. See, there is a... It is only when you remember, only then will you realize that you caught a glimpse while you were talking to someone or thinking of something else, when your attention was diverted, just a hint, a glimmer, a shade. Much later you will remember. Without really knowing why, vague peripheral sensations gather. Some fraction of a long rhythm is beginning to be recognized. The hidden frequencies and tides of the city, geometry of coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about you know in the interview? Because I think we're we're coming up to the end on this, but uh, he he does yeah. say some things that. Yeah,
0: I mean, we covered some points that I thought like related pretty well to. This I mean, uh getting back into kind of reminds me of that guy in college with the reservoir dog movie poster yeah he he like starts out and it's like almost hard to judge because it's like, well, this was fifteen or whatever years ago, uh, yeah, like it's almost twenty years ago, um, so like. You know, they didn't realize this sounded cringe then. (laughs) But yeah, he has a like long aside about how he loves like fucking Ed Wood movies and like old B movies because he's so wacky and different and actually in many ways Ed Wood uh, achieved what the avant-garde is only approaching now, which is really funny. (laughs) (laughs)
1: To read. <laughs> um, my, my favorite one was when he said Planet of the Apes and the Statue of Liberty at the end was a modern take on Shelley's Ozymandias. Sure, man.
0: <laughs> I mean, like... Okay, number one, it's entirely possible someone did have that thought when writing that scene. I mean, I have no fucking idea, personally, but it's not like that's that... Deep I mean, of I a love cut. Shelley's
1: Ozymandias. Yeah, and, you uh, know, like
0: also Ozymandias from The Watchmen is a reference to Shelley's Ozymandias, but um, you know, like it's not uh, that deep of a cut. Yeah, I guess. Why the fuck not? Um, they're exactly the same thing, really, if you think about it. <laughs> One's like a cool shit epic poem, and the other's like kind of a
1: shitty but fun goofy '70s movie. The other thing that I thought was interesting is he does see himself in relation to New Age with this yeah a- he, angelicness he seems,
0: yeah he does seem
1: to like reject New Age well yeah
0: and also think it's
1: really important that
0: you know that well, yeah he's trying to like find the self but not like those douchebags do it yeah I, I- <laughs> like <laughs> is uh, kind of his thing. Eh. That's not me. That's somebody else. Yeah, no, like, mine's the good one that isn't super cringe. But also, as we just
1: highlighted...
0: I mean, I can tell you that, like, Seinfeld referenced Plan 9 from Outer Space like ten fucking years before this shit came out, so he didn't totally invent that idea of uh, irony watching shitty movies.
1: Yeah, he's, his music is better than he comes off in the interview. I'll say that. Yeah. Eh.
0: I mean, he does sound like a sort of guy who would make that music. I just happen to kind of like it. <laughs> um, it's just not that bad. Um, but, like we said, he yeah, he gets into the fucking angelic stuff. He gets into how he likes urban post-apocalyptic imagery. And, you know, that whole bit about him growing up in the dying factory town of Lancaster. Yeah, you know, is interested in this, like, sort of... Does he ever use the word Gnostic? I don't know that he no, does. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he
1: does not. He does not. That's Mark Fisher's, like... But he,
0: he does use the word angelic quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so that's his whole thing. Again, not like how the New Age
1: people do it, though. No. Um, yeah. I think I told you this before, but the listener hasn't heard this before. Uh, I got arrested for breaking into an abandoned building.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Those, uh early early days and i found this hospital that mm. had all of its records intact in cardboard mm. boxes and they had it, it had been you know abandoned because of asbestos and we would go in it was like along this trail we'd go run through the trail and then break into one of the doors and we'd go through and you'd see these polaroids of the patients that were there cuz it was like a psych, mm. psych ward mm. and then in the closet they had these piles of you know all the the records dating back to the seventies and you could go through like this person is diagnosed with this this person escaped from the hospital (laughs) you know you'd see all these kind of like signifiers of what once was like the skid marks from the wheelchairs and the you know basically just looks like people didn't even have time to put stuff away when they abandoned it. Hmm. And I always I always think of that place. And yeah, one time I went, I, I kept going back and back because it was so fascinating. Was this high school? Or? Uh, get a, uh, I got arrested sophomore year of college. Oh, okay. um, and my friend and I, we threw a rock through the window because they figured out that people were breaking in. So they locked all the doors that we had been going in. So I threw a rock in the window and then... My friends went through the window, and then the cop came around and arrested me, and then picked him up when he left. Yeah. So that was my childhood abandoned buildings phase. I still think about that place because there there was just so many interesting things that are extremely hauntological about it. You know, it, it was like a psych ward. It mm-hmm. was a like an out. They had in like an outpatient program, and you could figure out these people's lives by, yeah no, it sounded this. like
0: a lot of information that you shouldn't have had access to <laughs> yeah I'm with you man Anyways. like they're ghosts except you they're had real your, people
1: you had your grandparents film set uh, that was
0: you know um, consensually made to be shown to others <laughs> um, whereas you know uh, psych ward hospital records or the other thing <laughs> but uh yeah that's
1: fun well next week we're gonna have yeah next week well we're
0: ending the hauntology chapter one or whatever oh two we're ending this one on a fucking banger
1: yep i'm so excited (laughs) for
0: this This we shouldn't say anything no let's just say r.i.p mark fisher you would have loved how this all turned out
1: You, 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 let's just say you're going to think differently about 808 and the heartbreak. <laughs> yeah, anyway. All right. Bye. Bye.